Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, Achtung, which is, of course, German for attention, attention, which is, of course, French for Achtung, Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, uh, Al Murray, and, of course, James Holland. Um, Jim and I, uh, uh, you've got one eye on, have you got one eye on the cricket? Have you turned it off? I have a little bit. I mean, it's been such a tonic this week, hasn't it? It's been been brilliant having this test series. Um, I also, I have to say, you know, I've been getting up early to write the book, um, so the cricket's been on, and I did watch uh, India beat Australia as well, which was, I have yeah. to say, up to that point was the the best day of the year. 
Um, <laughs> and then and then another fantastic tonic last week was um, uh, a great mate of mine came down and he brought me a present, which was um, the bat, the Slazenger bat that Ian Bell scored 300s with oh, against Pakistan lovely. in 2006, plus a little message from Belly himself. I mean... Oh, amazing. Yeah, no, no. So that's... that's, um, that's in, India... Under- India beating Australia as a sort of uh, post-imperial outsourcing field, isn't it? We get we've, we've got the <laughs> got India to uh, beat the Australians for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, of course we're uh, then going to have to place the Indians in India in a minute. But uh, yeah, yeah, I can't yeah, wait. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait. No, you need no, all this blue skies and sunshine and you know, thank God they are winning. That they can keep it going. That's the, yeah, that's the main amazing. thing. Amazing. Um, yeah, uh, now, uh, um, before we before we get because we've got lots to get through. Before we get into it, uh, um, for those of you enjoying uh, um, uh, the Wings of Pegasus, the George Chatterton's uh, George Chatterton's How I Won the War self penned uh, glider story, which is a, which and the feedback um, on on Twitter and on uh, from all of you has been fantastic. I've there's another book by Lawrence Wright who is mentioned in Chatterton. Um, he's the guy that builds all the models. He's an architect in civilian life. He's the guy that builds all the models in preparation for, for Operation Tonga and Dead Stick. He's the guy that prepares the glider pilots for landing in Normandy. He's part of the team that make the little film of how they're going to land at um, at the Con Canal and the uh, Orne River bridges. Um, anyway, um, he wrote a book, a, a thicker book even than Chatterton's, called The Wooden Sword, the uh, the untold story of the gliders of World War Two. And Chatterton doesn't come up much, but here he is. Um, to work with George Chatterton was to confirm that he was in every way the opposite of Rock. So uh, Lieutenant Colonel Rock's the guy who sets the glider pilot regiment up and then Chatterton takes over after he's killed. It had been no secret in the gl- that the glider pilot regiment had tended to divide itself into Rock's men and Chatterton's men. Chatterton, unlike Rock, had the dual qualifications needed for this inter-service job. We know all this, right? We know all this, blah, blah, blah. Thus, he'd become Rock's second-in-command. Incidentally, he'd taught Boy Browning to fly. We know all this, but what we don't know, right? <laughs> Rock expected, but did not constantly insist upon loyalty and discipline. Chatterton was now putting up coloured posters on the subject that Rock might have thought embarrassing. Rock never shone at a party, as Chatterton always did, with his famous Hitler impersonation, his brilliant improvised lampoons in rhyme on every personality in his audience, his ballet dance as a piping fawn in underpants. He was a born actor, and in that perhaps was a difficulty. When he was in anger or exalted or tragic mood, one could never be quite sure whether he was acting another part, and sometimes one laughed at the wrong moment. There you Mm. go. The other That's side slightly damning with faint praise, isn't it? I think it is, really, isn't it? It's yeah. saying, yeah, all right. You get, you get the impression he was a rock man, don't you? I think I think Lawrence Wright was a rock man, absolutely. Um, but, right, but anyway. do you think Lawrence Wright had a sense of humour, or do you think he was just a bit kind of, you know? I mean, judging, I've got to know where I'd land. I'd, I'd be with Chatterton all the way. I think judging, great. judging by what judging by what I've read, yes, um, he was actually. He, 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 it's it's pretty it's pretty dry and droll this book too. Yeah. Um, and he ran. He you know he one of the ran one of the ops rooms in one in thirty eight group. Um, right. Uh, right. So he you know he knew he knew everything that was everything that was going on. So he's um, a methodical details man. He's not. He's not a kind of. He takes no truck with show ponies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's not. He's also not got. He's not really got time for um, for the bullshit end of thing. He's he's one against wants to get his job done, but he's not interested in behaving like a guardsman, which is Chatterton's thing. And after all, Browning's a guardsman. Chatterton's a guardsman. Chatterton done one of the guards in 1940, which is which is why he's one of Browning's men. You know, fascinating, uh, though, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. little feature. fiefdoms. Anyway, yeah, yeah. anyway, 
Now, the reason, um, the fun we had last week, though, the reason I started in German this week, Achtung, Achtung, is because on our Patreon site, we posited this question. It is early 1940. And I, I, um, by the way, this was uh, uh, the, the team that run the site. Every now and again, what happens is one of them, you know, maybe drinks some lockdown wine and then goes on and posts a question on the Patreon and gets um, a response. Big response. It is early 1940 and you're in charge of planning Operation Sea Line. What are your key strategic points? That's right, dear listener. We asked you to imagine yourself in the field, in the shoes of a senior German planning officer, maybe uh, Field Marshal Gert von Rundstedt. And what fun you had. 49 mini essays arrived for us to analyse and enjoy. And there were some brilliant suggestions, some wild suggestions. A lot of people said, no, don't do it. But if you absolutely have to and proceeded to give detailed battle plans. Jim Bagnall even suggested we land in Wales. Um, <laughs> Definitely yes, tricky place to land in England. Yes, absolutely. Well, there was that um, uh, French party that landed in Wales, and they were chased off by the by the by the, 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 the legend is that the local women in their stovepipe hats hats were confused for guardsmen. I don't know if that's got a grain of truth in it. Anyway, we could have picked from dozens of outstanding answers, but we've gone with Nigel Toms, who said it wasn't a good idea, but if he had to do it, it begins with the Germans not giving a halt order as they advance to Dunkirk. They go all out to trap and force the surrender of the expeditionary force. Then they bomb the naval ports and anything else they can find that reduces British military capability. Britain is forced to surrender, losing 300,000 plus troops and equipment in France. As soon as the net closes, German paratroopers start landing in Britain at a non-naval port with a good airfield. Bexhill or Brighton, pick the one that's least defended. Chaos ensues in Britain as moves are made to defend the country with remaining resources. Regardless of losses, Germany keeps pouring in troops by air and sea. Fighters can operate from the airfield in Britain. Maybe open a fake second front at Ipswich to force a split of British forces. Then as chaos reigns over three to seven days, airborne forces have limited reserve. Offer peace and a withdrawal, making sure the British public knows the offer. Drop millions of leaflets, radio announcements, especially around London. British troops to be freed and return home. Germany gets a free hand in Europe. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that, OK, that just sends shivers down my spine. That kind yeah, it of, does. You know, I, don't, I don't even want to contemplate that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. Nigel, but... Um, ugh. I mean, the thing is, you know, uh, we'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> because it didn't happen. But, um, uh, I mean, when you, look at, when you look at what Ironside's planning to do and then what Churchill thinks he can do and the, the divisions at the top in British yes. High Command, how they'd actually have responded to a land, you know, a, a, a concerted landing at a place like Bexhill or Brighton. We don't know, do we? I mean, the fact is they don't have the amphibious capability, really. So they need a port, don't they? That's the well, Germans' problem. This, they need this a is port. the problem. This is the problem with the whole thing, with, with the counterfactual thing with, with Sea Lion. There's a very good reason why Hitler never launched it, even Hitler, the arch gambler, is because it yeah. was such a bad plan. It was never had a million... You know, it's never going to work in a million, million years. And so when you're doing these counterfactuals, you're constantly coming against problems. I mean, I, I, I'd have thought the obvious thing to do was, the sensible thing to do was to actually just miss out the southeast of England and go straight into, in you know, land in Suffolk or something where you've got lots of long beaches. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you're not, you've got flat land, which means you can quickly set up landing grounds which is yep. precisely what they did in you know the, the british and uh, americans did from 1942 onwards um an air power it seems to me is kind of key to the whole thing you know that kind of local air, air superiority but um, 
You're yep. that bit closer to Scapa Flow if you're landing in um, the north on the North Sea coast, aren't you? You're that bit, little bit more vulnerable to the Royal Navy showing up, aren't you? Well, the Royal Navy are already in the southeast of England, so so there you are. You're already hitting a stumbling block before you get there, and that that doesn't include the kind of having to get through the minefields and all the rest of it. I mean, yeah, you you know, every which way you turn, there's huge, huge, huge problems with this, Uh, and the fact that they just don't have the landing craft to do it. I mean, they don't. Um, Yeah, um, and even those sort of rather what's it called, Siebel. ferries that they've got those little sort of square yeah. platforms that they've got you know they just don't have enough of those and you're not going to yeah. get those across rough seats one well, thing no, they're basically messina which is a sort of mile long i mean it's fine kind of using them on a lake but it's not in english channel you know and that's yeah. they're ba- they're basically sort of mexi float things aren't they they're, they're, yeah they're like so, a floating platform yeah exactly but but they are motorized well they're motorized you know that's that's the thing yeah um which a lot of the german landing craft that they're assembling for sea lion isn't um, yeah. So every every which way you turn on this, you come up against the same problems. They don't have the naval but, forces to, to to pull it off. But if you've got the no halt order and the surrender of the expeditionary force and the Dunkirk evacuation doesn't happen, Britain politically, the political impetus the political to surrender is very different. That's completely different yeah. because you don't have you don't have a um, okay. Well, we got out of that scrape. We're resolved to deal with the no. next one. Um, opportunity for a brand new government, after all, um, who are now taking the, who would then be taking the blame, which is after all, one of the reasons why someone as as politically sort of uh, devices of, uh, as Churchill within his own party gets the gig anyway, because it's kind of like, all right, you do it then. Ugh, I don't want no one respectable of the Conservative Party wants the job. So I mean, it's it that that would I mean that. In Nigel's counterfactual, that's the crucial part. That what the campaign is that follows is is sort of, is sort of, I, I kind of I, I I sort of not the point. The the main the massive political difference that a British government would be grappling with if the Dunkirk evacuation doesn't happen successfully, then I think you're looking at you are looking at the British suing for peace. I don't see how how you how you how you couldn't do that politically because you'd have massive public pressure to want to get get. The BEF back, our boys back, colossal political pressure that would, I think, be sort of un, undeniable, and um, that would change everything. Yeah, no, I completely, I completely agree. It's, it's why I've always said that Monday, the twenty seventh of of May, is the closest Britain ever comes to losing the war because that's the day that Halifax and Churchill have their spat about, um, and, and Halifax threatens to resign. If 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 Halifax had resigned. I think it would be very hard for Churchill to have stayed in power, which then means you wouldn't have had that shorehand on on the on the tiller. And I suspect that the force of Halifax going, well, what we really need to do is open peace negotiations would have been unstoppable. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it had just been there'd have been not no necessarily, way but I think that's that's the that's the big danger. Um, you know, had. Uh, and I suspect what would have happened is that Halifax would have, you know, who who kind of said, OK, fine, fair enough. You know, you win this one on the on the 28th of, of May. Had yeah. Dunkirk failed, they wouldn't have had that conversation. Yeah. 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 I mean, so it's... so I do think I do think it's about politics rather than by, you know, by military losses, because because actual fact, even if the BEF had been completely surrounded and put in the bag, there's no reason for surrendering at all. I mean, you know, but Britain still has a huge number of of of, of 
things in its favour. Its global reach, its navy, its merchant navy, its air force, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but I think... Uh, but, but I, I think, agree. But I agree. Psychologically, I think those are big if, things. If we're talking about, you know, the decisive battle, losing 300,000 men in France, is that's a decisive battle defeat, isn't it? I yes, mean, it is. It is. What I'm <laughs> saying is, is, yes, but it's in France. It's not in Britain. And, yeah, and is, yeah, I, spo- there, there I is, suppose. You know, on paper, there is absolutely no reason to throw in the towel at all. There's none. Mm, mm. Yeah. But 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 I, that's not the same as you know that that's discounting all those sort of psychological factors and psychological factors yeah. are, are are huge. Well, because after all, I mean, you know, there there is no extricating the uh, the political from all of this. Even at the end of the war, when we talk about when we when you look at um, the the last phase of the war with uh, you know um, Montgomery trying to make sure that that you know trying to trying to strike a quick win after after the breakout that's political he's trying to make sure that britain has a place at the post-war table of course and if the because if the americans win the, the european land war then Brit- britain doesn't have that anymore you know lo- loses its grasp on that and that's so he's not he's not just thinking militarily he's thinking mm. politically and i think if you if you back project that into 94 i mean 94 after all there's considerable like like I was saying a moment ago, there's considerable debate at the top as to whether defending is is an option, you know, is actually a viable thing, whether anyone's preparations will work. Because, and they like you, I mean, we've talked about this before, there's that four-week window, isn't there, where, where they do rearm, where they do get rifles into people's hands, where they do organise, where the LDV is sort of shook into um, uh, into shape yep. and all that sort of stuff. But But you've still got, you've still got, Stuka, the Stuka's mythical power over land troops. You know, if you if you've got a situation where the the Luftwaffe turn up and do something tactical, you might have loads of soldiers think, "Well, sod this, I'm out of here." Which yeah. is, after all, the the hangover from France, isn't it? And 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 again, which which is also why in nineteen, uh, 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 which is why our anti aircraft guns are used to as uh, anti aircraft guns rather than anti tank weapons, for instance. In other, in later encounters, because you've got to defend yourself from the sky, because we've seen what happens in France if one side gets control of the sky. I mean, it's why, in the end, you could argue the Allies completely overdo it in terms of aerial power in the in the you know last year and a half of the war. You know, these things all yeah. feed into each other, and they're all political. They are all everything's political. So you can't you can't remove. I mean, I really do. I I, I think I think if you've got if you've got I mean, how many families is three hundred thousand men in the bag um, <laughs> yes. writing to their writing to their MPs? You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I listen. I, 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 I absolutely accept all that. Um, you know, which is why the whole order just is is just so bad and and such a disastrous, catastrophic decision. Yeah. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced that 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 Karl Heinz Frieser is completely right on his assessment of Hitler on this. It it absolutely stacks up. And if you're ever looking for reasons, you always want to go for the one that's most obvious. Um, and mm. that is the most obvious, i.e., that he's just trying to pull a, you know, pull his weight well, over, over. Show his boss. Yeah. Show his yeah, yeah. boss. You know, but what? You know, but but that's what happens when your military commander, your commander in chief, you know, has only ever been a lance corporal, and um, you know, hasn't yeah. been to staff college, and you know, all those yeah. sort of things, and doesn't really know what he's doing. Um, yeah. Well, but thank, and thank goodness. And is thinking purely politically rather than militarily. In fact, so you know, there's too there's too much politics and not enough military in his thinking. 
It's yeah, the... absolutely. I mean, there's no question that, that at the end of May, beginning of June, there is this moment of absolute peril for Britain. Uh, and with every passing week in June uh, 1940, that, that moment of peril starts to kind of lessen um, gradually... Uh, and, and by the middle of July, it's 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 completely lessened. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I, I think you know we're, we're but by the time the you know the the attacks in the Channel start, it's absolutely clear at that point that the Luftwaffe are not going to launch an all-out attack any moment soon because they can't yeah. organise themselves. Well, you know? well, I mean, and, and this the... is the big thing that everyone forgets is that the the logistical effort, the the, the operational effort of getting of, of Case Yellow and Case Red, you know, the the yeah. the, the attack in the West. Um, and the and the conquest of France is so enormous that there's well, not that, much capacity left for for well, any that's what I was going to that's what I was going to say is when does Nigel when does Nigel propose to do this before Case Red, you know um, because if you if you do it before Case Red you've probably got the stuff to kit the people, but then you give France a breathing space don't you so maybe France gets its uh, uh, shit together because the Germans have lost their momentum or or. To split their momentum in order to, you know, you haven't. France isn't actually yet out until the end of um, Case Red. Is the is the thing, is it? No, not you out until so, you know. Ask for armistice on is it the nineteenth of June or eighteenth of June? Yeah, exactly. So, 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 but, but, like, like you say. I mean, after all, does the Luftwaffe have the means to drop German paratroopers? In significant no. enough amounts, no, no because it's and, lost and also it's lost three hundred and fifty-three planes just on the tenth of May alone. Yeah, and the Fallschirmjäger have also taken a real kicking. After all, they had a, although that you know, and again, this is an airborne ops thing. Was oh, Epen Mal, you know, the miracle of it, the, the tactical, the strategic, you know, blow with Epen Mal with a handful of gliders and some and some uh, assault engineers. But but then you look at you look at the other airborne landings where the Fallschirmjäger is slaughtered, you know. Absolutely, uh, and also don't um, forget that a whole um, Fallschirmjäger um, best part of a battalion is destroyed at Donbass in the central yep. Norway, you know, yep. by by Norwegian troops. It's just just sort of you know because they land and they're surrounded and they've got no way out because they're in the yeah. middle of Norway in the middle of mountains yeah. with lots of snow around. Um, yeah. So there's that as well. I mean, it's just there isn't the German capacity for this. That's the problem. But you know the the operational capacity to, to to pull it off i mean it's very interesting because erhard milk who is the um number two in the um, luftwaffe flies over dunkirk i think on the 5th of june something like that and he sees a lot of abandoned equipment but he can't see a single british soldier at all and that's because they've <laughs> all gone and so he, he contacts goering and he says you know what we need to do now we just need to get over to britain straight away uh goering yeah. is sort of you know buying art in Amsterdam yeah. or whatever he's doing, some big fat, and um, <laughs> uh, uh, and he says, well, of course that's not possible. And he says, well, it it might not be, but that's that's what we need to do. And of course he's absolutely right. But 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 you can't do what you can't do. I mean, you know, yeah. you just yeah, yeah, just yeah, isn't yeah. the capacity. And and the 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 thing is is that the the Germans flattered to deceive. You know, because of this relentless propaganda of of Nuremberg rallies and stormtroopers and automaton troops all lined up and all the rest of it, because of the footage, the film footage that's come of Poland and bombing of Warsaw, of endless dive bombers and panzers and all the rest of it, because of this that's been pumped out, which has then been backed up by a spate of extraordinary military victories, everyone thinks that they're this 
absolute monster war machine that can't be stopped. This sort of mighty yeah. Moloch that is just completely unstoppable. Um, so psychologically, they've overplayed their hand because everyone thinks that they're they're bigger and more more dangerous and more um, uh, uh, um, and more powerful than than is actually the reality. And I mean, the reality is that they start the attack on the West on the 10th of May 1940 with half the number of artillery pieces, not as many tanks on par in terms of aircraft, just with France alone and not the even and even fewer yeah. men in, in uniform than France. But, but do they know that in London? Do, what do they know in what do they? Well, what do they you know, it's Donald Rumsfeld. What do they know they know? What do they uh, what do they not know? Uh, what do they know they don't know about Germany? Okay, is, so, so is this because that's the, that's actually the, that's actually the absolute uh, crux of the summer of the, what the British government does in the summer of 1940, isn't it? Yeah. Because because they have just been unexpectedly defeated, having been absolutely certain that what they were going to do was fight a First World War containment battle again, didn't they? That the, 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 so everyone has been everyone has been caught out. The British army were wrong. The British government were wrong. The, the war office was wrong. All the sensible people um, and intelligent people writing in newspapers were wrong. Everyone is everyone is wrong. But do they know? Do they know that the Germans have done it? Um, kind of by slight of military hand and actually by a return to warfare of manoeuvre from the old days is actually what they've done. They just they've retooled old principles with new kit and a new and a new way of delivering a schwerpunkt. Have they realised that yet? At what point do they at what point do they go, hang on a minute, if you do the sums, there's no way they can have enough tanks. There's no way that, you know, look at how many planes got shot down in the first, you know, on the on May the 10th. Do they know this? Because because after, because if they do, then Ironside arguing with Churchill is kind of like by the by. It doesn't really matter. Your arguments about how you defend the British coast are as much. How does the British army reorganise and recapture its mojo is actually the, 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 what that then leads to. That's the task, actually, not defending the UK. What do they know? Yeah, so... Um... Interestingly, they've they've completely obviously they've completely underestimated them before the launch of the Blitzkrieg in in, yeah. in um, yeah. Denmark and Norway in April nineteen forty. So they they don't they're pretty confident after Poland that they've got enough in the tank to kind of be able to deal with yeah. the Germans. Yeah, you know they don't think they have got a lot. Um, they've got very um, they've got pretty accurate um, um, intelligence and all the various units. So they yep. know what divisions are what and all the rest of it. And they also, yep. interestingly, have a very, very good intelligence on the Luftwaffe in terms of yeah. all the Luftwaffe units. They know where they are. And by the, by the certainly by the start of the Battle of Britain, you know, they know uh, in August 1940 that, you know, they know that um, Eagle Day, that is, on the 13th of August. Yeah. They know, you know, which units are in Norway and which are in, in Holland and Belgium and which are in France and where they are and all the yeah. rest of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So they've got a pretty clear idea of it. I think what what you what you do have is you have a sort of collective okay, we badly underestimated them, we mustn't do that again, which then leads yeah. you to overestimate their strength and their, yeah. their capability. Um they also they assume that all squadrons are based on the same principle as British squadrons, which yeah. have kind of double the number of planes as a broad rule of thumb to how many you would ever have airborne at any one time. 
So they mm. basically sort of overestimate the number by but, about but is two the, thirds. But is there anyone going, no, they can't possibly invade? Come on, think about it. Have a look. Think. There's just no way they can pull this off. Y- yeah. I mean, one of them is Admiral Charles Forbes, who's the commander yeah. in chief of the Home Fleet. He's very clear headed about this and going, you know, we've got to start protecting our convoys. And it's absurd. You know, there's no way that the Germans are going to launch a, uh, uh, an invasion without us knowing for at least 24 hours beforehand. Within yeah. 24 yeah. hours, we can get from anywhere. In the, in, steam anywhere. Anyone in Steam into, anywhere. In, yeah. Um, and actually having them all sort of sitting around the southeast is not a very sensible use of your resources. Um, yeah. uh, and so it proves to be. Um, so, you know, and there's Churchill, who also gets that, that um, you know, where uh, uh, Britain is in a pretty good good situation. It's, it, it's mainly politicians that are losing their heads. I mean, it's very interesting. If you read someone like Harold Nicholson, for example, you know, he kept a diary during the time. He's a yeah, yeah, yeah. Minister, he, he's where's the Ministry of Information. I mean, you know, he's kind of sort of like, I've got my, my cyanide pills. He's got pill his cyanide ready. pills and everything, yeah. yeah he's ready you know, to go, isn't he? So there is definitely a lot of people losing their heads and, and kind of, you know, the, the blind panic happens in, the, you know, happens from the 14th of May onwards when it's yeah. absolutely clear that the Germans have blown a hole through the through the, the uh, Meuse front in the French lines and the, and the situation is unrecoverable. You know, that's when, that's when um, Renault rings up, um, uh, I think he's on the morning of the 15th and says, says to Churchill, you know, we, we've lost, we've lost the battle. Um, yeah. And that moment is just, that is the strategic earthquake. You know, that is that Phillips Pace and O'Brien was talking about. That is yeah. that moment, you know, when everyone suddenly goes, holy moly, we are up the creek and we we just did not see this coming. Um, yeah. And, and it's a massive problem. And slowly but surely, one, one of the one of the things that's so brilliant about Churchill is what he does is he brings back that sense of self-belief. You know, the first big speech is the 4th of June. Uh, the, the sort of, you know, uh, um, the deliverance of, of Dunkirk. Then comes the yeah. next one on the 18th of June, which is, you know, the fight them on the beaches one, I think. Um, then there's a, then then there's a, you know there's others and at that point everyone starts to sort of coalesce around him and and yeah. kind of sort of goes ah actually you know what we're, we're, yeah you know he's right who okay deep breath chaps you know let's start thinking about it and, and there's also the, I think there is this collective sense of of relief which is famously kind of mentioned by George VI once France is out of the war. Yeah. And yeah. one of the reasons is because Brit- the British are control freaks. They like being in yeah. charge. Yeah, and the yeah, problem, yeah. And the problem they've got, and it's not just that, it's also that you've got France, which is politically very, very weak because of its yeah. coalition. And because, yeah. because there's so many factions, so many different people, there is this, this constant feeling that no one can make a decision. And in war, well, you, and need, also, you need and, to be decisive. Also, Quite a determined chunk of the population who think oh, we don't want to do if if if, the, if we're going to do Verdun again, uh, count me out. You know, because uh, uh, because after all, for, because we we talk often about the, the you know the, the political effect of the First World War um, on the British political establishment in the interwar years and what uh, you know and, and how that dictates uh, you know not 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 just appeasement but also that then feeds into steel not flesh and all that. Yes. Um, is that the French have had that, but. On a much larger scale, they lost. What was it? Three million? How many? Is it three million killed in the First World War? Yeah, it's it's that, yeah. It's, it's worse for them. So they're thinking, no, it, you know, it, there's a, a sizable enough chunk of France thinks if it's if, there's, if we've got to do that again, absolutely count me out. I'm not interested. And that uh, and 
you know, yes, but yes, you're absolutely right. There is a chunk of the British establishment that goes, hooray, no longer having but, but, to but deal it's with partly about, but, but it's partly about control for freakery, but it's also partly because, yeah. okay, so we know we can make decisions. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's... There's less kind of sort of hedgerows to kind of force your way through to make yeah. those decisions. You know, you can yeah. just you can just yeah. make them. You know, we're not in a we are in a coalition warfare a coalition government, but it's not it's not like the sort of twelve different parties from stretching from extreme left to extreme right yeah. that you've got in France. And the yeah. problem is, as everyone always knows, and you were making that point just a minute ago about about it is always political, is you can't really separate. You know, if the military leadership doesn't have the political backing, it's it's stuffed. Yeah, and suddenly. Yeah. Without France, everything becomes a lot clearer. That decision-making yeah. process becomes a lot clearer. But but disentangling Churchill's ability to rhetorically galvanise people from what they actually know about the German capacity and capability is the yes. Is, well, I, I think they do have a pretty clear picture of the of the German capacity. But I think they I, th I think their their thought process has been affected by just how badly they underestimated How stunning it. Them. Well, how stunningly, stunningly they've been defeated. Anyway, we yes. need to take a short break uh, while James and I take a good long look at our map of the South Coast. And Brighton will be ours by nightfall. James, <laughs> left flank through Hove, mein Freund. See you in a tick. Willkommen zurück im Podcast, liebe Zuhörer. Now, that's uh, what you could have won. A, a couple of quick points of order. Um, uh, see, now we that I do you... German, I can, I can tell you what that, that means. Yeah, yeah. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Back, dear listeners. Dear listeners, yeah. Um, uh, now, that's what you could have won. Uh, a couple of quick points of order. Um, I, we hope you enjoyed our Family Stories podcast on Sunday morning. Um, I listened to it in the car with the family when we were driving a, a local distance to a park to run around in the snow. Thank you very much. And... Um, I, I I loved it. Um, uh, I, and I know it's that thing where you, you know, you record it and you send it, you send it into production and all that. And then you think you maybe don't think about it again, but I really liked it because it did do that thing of, you know, we, I mean, we've been talking about high, the high end, haven't we? We've been talking about the, the, the political and the strategic here and a dash of operational, but not, you know, not much tactical, which is the poor sods running around <laughs> doing it. Um, and it, it plugged us right into that all over the world as well, wasn't it? Iwo Jima and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, all, all over. It was fascinating. Everywhere. I loved the I loved the bits you read, James. They were they were great. Well, I thought the they were all good, and it was you know you're you're right. It's a it's a it's it's a lovely little reminder that there are so many millions of people who were caught up in this, and you know yeah. I mean I'm sure it's what what drew you to it in the first place. Yeah. But certainly what drew me to the subject in the first place is this idea of ordinary people being caught up in extraordinary yeah. events and having yeah. to kind of just suck it up and deal with it um and it's all those stories of ordinary people that we're getting isn't it you know those yeah. lovely stories about people who otherwise have been completely forgotten about apart from by their families you yeah. know completely anonymous um and suddenly you're giving them a little bit of voice which is really well that, nice. that i thought i mean i was again i was struck by that thing you know this this uh this guy who went to Iwo Jima and he was in his 30s so he was old he didn't have to go they no. kept saying you don't they kept saying you don't have to go he's a steel worker so he had a reserved occupation but he went anyway and then went back to the steelworks it's sort of like you know the 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 the, the yes his... my, my little sort of interruption in my life has, has yeah. been and gone I'm now <laughs> yeah. back to normal 
Yeah, and then that amazing thing where he's sort of watching the um, the 50th anniversary of the end yeah. of the war and sees himself on telly. Um, yeah, incredible. yeah, amazing. Anyway, so the we um we're going to do this this every Sunday. The plan is to do every Sunday morning uh, while the nation languages in its lockdown pajamas. And because the Second World War is a bottomless pit, we imagine there will be many, 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 many th- family stories to come. Um, by the way, this Thursday, this Thursday we have got Peter Caddick Adams on the live stream. The dandy high woman himself, the PCA, the dandy high woman himself, um, cravat. Um, uh, he'll be, I, I bet, because I'll admit it. The other night when I wore a jacket, uh, tie, and shirt, I wasn't, I wasn't wearing suit trousers with it. I was doing. You were know, just wearing your pants. Yeah, that's right. I was doing the <laughs> underpants job. But you know, Peter will be in the. He'll be in finely pressed red cords on with Thursday his, night with his interesting lack of colour coordination. <laughs> It's because he's colourblind. He is colourblind. It's hilarious. So you get sort of, you know, vivid green with pink. They were never going to make him the camouflage officer, were they? Um, no. there's much. There was much clamour for Peter last week, and we're nothing if not populists here at We Have Ways. As the snow lies on the ground across much of Western Europe, it seems only right that Peter will take us deep inside the Ardennes. Whereas, we metaphorically speak, the German Wehrmacht is readying itself for a final push. Um, it's coming. I mean, by now, the Wehrmacht, the, the Ardennes offensive is pretty much over, isn't it? It's 25th, 25th 26th of January that week. Yep. It's kind of it's completely over, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, I had a, um, a a new kit come at the weekend, which is a Sherwood Rangers Firefly, and I've got some American paratroopers to go with it. No! So we can, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Once I've finished my diorama of the of the M32 fishing a Cromwell out of a... Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's looking... Um, 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 yeah. I've ordered some. I'd order some reeds and some rushes for that. Anyway, right. Um, some emails this week. A reminder: you can contact us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail Right now, this is from Jamie uh, via Twitter. Um, <clears throat> he says, um, "Well, it, it, it's an email as well. Thank you so much for the podcast. I travel two and a half hours daily, serving with the RAF. Oh, God bless you, and genuinely look forward to it when I have a WHW." podcast in wait um out of interest working in logistics aha right okay so he's RAF logistics um it's been mentioned that the supply chains made a huge difference and that the germans almost outpaced their own outpaced their own loggies by their rapid advance can i ask how much logistics played its part in the downfall of germany and was too much emphasis placed on buy new rather than sustain what we have for example, were French factories repurposed to make 109 parts or Panzer trucks, tracks, or did everything have to come from the Ruhr? Logistics isn't mentioned often, but from Alexander the Great to Eisenhower, they've all stated how critical supply lines are to a war. Um, on a side note, any recorded instance of heavy bombers shooting down other heavy bombers? Well, we'll get. Let's do the. Let's do do logistics first. I mean, there's lots to answer in that, isn't there? Yeah, that's a that's a meaty one, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean the, the the bottom line is yes. I mean, you know, they lose the war because they can't supply their forces enough, and they haven't got enough of anything. Um, yes, again, um, you know, Germany doesn't have a, a tradition of mass production in the same way that has been developed by Henry Ford and Chrysler and all the rest of it over in um, the American automobile uh, industry in the nineteen twenties and thirties. So they don't have that background. Yeah. Um, and they don't have the capacity to do that anyway. So that's one of the reasons why they keep going for more complex and high performing, um, let's say in the case of tanks, panzers, um, over, you know, bog standard mass produced ones. 
Yeah. Uh, because if you can't mass produce a bog standard one, then you might as well have a few very, very good ones. So that's, to bespoke princi- super tanks. Yeah, that's the, yeah. yeah so that, that's the principle behind the behind the tiger and the panther. Of course, the problem with that, of course, is is that the more complicated they are, the more complicated they are to repair and drive and all the rest of yeah. it. And because because Germany doesn't have this huge background of a, of a major automobile industry in the first place, you haven't got that many people who know how to repair them, how to drive them and all the rest of it i mean so you're putting less experienced men into more complex vehicles and of course more of them are going to break down i mean because because after all the the german um motor industry i mean and in the first part we were talking about the success of german propaganda which actually is still sort of nazi propaganda it's still sort of successful now people think of the beetle as there's the as the Hitler car, you know, the Volkswagen, yep. the people's car that that. But they made one successfully before yeah. the war, didn't they? Yeah. And Volkswagen anyway was skimming the money it was being skimmed off to spend on armaments that people right. would don't would people would put a down payment, wouldn't they, on their Beetle, and the money the money would disappear into the right. into the into paying for right. armaments. It became a Kubelwagen. <laughs> Exactly, exactly right. But this is, I mean, the thing is, and again, I mean, you know, you and you only outrun your supply chains if the people making the politico-military decisions, the strategic decisions, um, don't really know what they're doing. Um, you know, Barbarossa is the is if you want to see someone outrun their logistic cap- capacity. Operation Barbarossa is sort of a, like a, a yes, complete it's, it's, case. In- it's, it's called the culmination point. So the culmination point is the moment where you can no longer operate in the way you want to because your supply chain is overreached. Right. And and it was reckoned beforehand that the culmination point was going to be 500 miles. But actually, it was more like 250. Right. You know, so they over, you know, and, and they underestimated the fact that, I mean, they had 2000 different types of vehicles. Yeah, um, of all kinds um, for for Barbarossa, and every single one of those vehicles, those different vehicles, has a different needs a different gasket or a different yeah. distributor cap or a different coil. You know, all these sort of basic things you've got to supply all this. The the big thing is is that because they're so under mechanized in, in the second, despite everyone talk about the Nazi war machine, you know, as we've already established, you know, Germans yeah. are kind of under mechanized compared to Britain and France and and certainly the US, um, and so consequently, as a result of that, and that is partly because they just don't have enough and they don't have the capacity to make them, but it's also because they don't have enough fuel. They just don't have yeah. the oil to kind of support yeah. that kind of huge um, mechanised um, army. I mean, of course, you know, everyone would have endless, fully 100% mechanised forces if they could. Um, but but the Germans never have more than about 10 15% of their armies are, are fully mechanised. So... Yeah. You know, so so what do you do? Well, you use your railway, and the railway is the one thing that is is, is you know I've always seen the Reichsbahn very much as the kind of glue that is keeping the armed forces together, and you do see that once that glue, once the Reichsbahn fails, which only fails really in February nineteen forty five, that is when the German armed forces start to kind of completely collapse completely. Well, there's because they can't fa- sustain it anymore. They can't, you but know, you can't a- supply anything. There's no replacements. There's nothing. All you've got by that stage is literally the odd Panzer and people scurrying around with Panzerfaust and machine well, guns. Well, so there's a counterfactual for you. What if um, uh, bomber command, the strategic bombing campaign, had been simply directed at at the, at the Reichsbahn? Yeah, well, they did spend a. I mean, of course, they spend a huge amount of their capacity and time on the Reichsbahn. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. You yeah, know, they're they're constantly smashing marshalling yards. I mean. 
every single marshalling yard in Germany is completely kaput, which, you know, but obviously it's accumulation effect. And it's amazing yeah, the yeah. ingenuity in which the Germans operate and continue to operate across broken tracks and broken bridges. You know, they take a, a train up to one side, you know. Yeah. Unload the unload the train onto another train on the other side of the broken bridge. Yeah. And it sort of continues. You know, it's, it's absolutely hopeless. And of course, you know, all that does is just slow you up. Now, the interesting thing about the Germans and the German way of war is, is you know, it's Bewegenskrieg. It's this this operation, you know, it's, it, it is the art of speedy operations. I mean, that's always been their USP. It's how they've always operated. Because, because of... Because they don't have the pockets to do the, the No, so thing. you have to, if you're going to win a war, you've got to do it really quickly. That's the whole point. There is nothing new about Blitzkrieg at all. It's what, the, it's what the Germans and before them the Prussians have been doing since Frederick the Elector, you know, in the yeah. early part of the 18th century. It's, it's absolutely how they operate yeah. because they know that they're short of things. So what do you do? Well, you, you win very decisively and very quickly. You annihilate your enemy and then it's kind of job done and that, that yeah. sort of staves off your, your supply problems. But what that does mean is in those first three days, three weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, three months of Barbarossa. You've got to make sure you win. And so your your supplies, your your logistics if, has got to be absolutely but that stupendously means, good. But 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 of course, when you're fighting Russia, what does win mean? Because after all, Napoleon gets to Moscow, yes. burns Moscow to the ground, because the Russian army uh, decides not to um bother engaging so that it doesn't lose and lets Let's Napoleon run himself out, basically, in his effort to yep. get to Moscow, and that works. <laughs> I mean, well, that, well, you yes. know, I mean, I mean, Barbarossa is 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 planned on the assumption that the Red Army will be annihilated. We're not talking yeah. about kind of you know giving them a bloody nose so that they come to the peace table. That yeah. it will be annihilated. It is a war of annihilation, um, yeah. and and so. That is why the challenge of Barbarossa, despite these absolutely stunning series of victories in late June and, and throughout July and into August 1941, yeah. they're not enough. Well, because well, there is no, because, there is no, there is no, no middle ground. It's got to be all or nothing. Well, because because the Soviets don't believe in a middle ground either. I mean, this is the this is you know if you if you fought if you let's say you fight you know the, the you don't need to defeat France with a war of annihilation, do you? You can defeat France militarily exactly. on the battlefield in the old-fashioned way, where you you fight some decisive battles <laughs> that make the politicians go, ah, we've lost. Whereas Stalin isn't Stalin isn't going to do that, is he? No. And this is sort of absolutely not. It, it, it's it, it it it's the way it's the way that um. The, uh, the Nazis pick opponents and de- ways of dealing with those opponents that simply reinforce their problems. You know, a, 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 exactly. a, a decisive victory. What is a decisive victory in, in at Barbarossa? Well, it's it's like you say, it's annihilating the Red Army because that's that's how the how Hitler thinks and that's how Stalin thinks. So but, if you can't, if you don't do that, you haven't you you haven't won, and you're not going to win. No, and, and, and to be fair, I mean, you know, he makes that clear right from the word go. I mean, yeah. no one's in any doubt about it. I mean, yeah. it, the, the, the problem for the German high command is that, that they've taken many of, 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 the, of the, the reasons for success in France and, and misinterpreted them for Barbarossa. So yeah. they've looked at it and said, we have just beaten one of the world's superpowers with the largest navy, you know, you know, one of the largest navies in the world, and yep. with um, um, more guns than us and all the rest of it, and, yeah. and bigger tanks, and we've still won. So, therefore, yep. how hard can it be against these bunch of kind of untermentioned Slavs? Really? Yep. 
Yeah. And of course, the reason why they've won is because France is a democracy and is simply not going to kind of fight to the last man. Yeah. And secondly, because its very infrastructure is what's enabled the Germans to operate with such yeah. speed. You know, you, they literally can pull into the filling station, of which there are numerous numbers. Yeah. There are plentiful amounts in France because it is the most automotive society yeah. in the whole of Europe yeah. and in the world outside the United States. And being able to fill up and kind of continue on their way. The problem with the Soviet Union is there isn't that infrastructure. There's there's infinite numbers of men by kind of 1941 standards. And Stalin isn't going to throw in the towel. Yeah. So all the assumptions which, which they've drawn from France are simply not applicable to Barbarossa. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the, now the other, the next part of Jamie's question. For example, were French factories repurposed to make one and nine parts or Panzer tracks, or did everything have to come from the Ruhr? Yes, they. The, the, yeah, there was a decisive effort to re to redirect French industry that failed, <laughs> failed miserably, and they just could not get output out of French factories at all, could they? And, yeah. and but but it's very clear why, and that's because you know they stole all France's money and they stole all the coal, so the factory workers <laughs> couldn't get to the factories anymore because their cars yeah. didn't work because they'd been <clears> half inched by the Germans, and there wasn't yeah. any fuel anyway because the Germans had stolen it, um, and, and they couldn't power the power stations because the the coal had been sent to Germany as well. Yeah. So you know when when the you know one of the leading industrial nations in the world is reduced to nothing, it's not going to produce much industry, is yeah. it? Yeah, yes. I mean, the, the Germans, Germans are like kids in a sweet shop. They just clear the whole thing out and then wonder why it's not, not working anymore. Yeah, because because in theory, conquered Europe by the by the end of the fall of France and uh, 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 the conquered the conquered part of Europe is the biggest. You know, is an enormous economic block in theory. Yes. Um, but the moment the Germans take it all over, it doesn't work anymore as an economic block. Because basically, like you say, their priority is to, is to pinch stuff rather than have it all chime along and work together. Because, because that's, the, that's the way that, you know, they, they completely believe in a kind of, you know, uh, 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 possession is nine-tenths of the law thing. And that, OK, I mean, just, just imagine if, if, I mean, we're talking counterfactuals. Just imagine if the Germans yeah. go into France, Holland and Belgium and go, OK, um, uh, it is now a dictatorship, but it's going to be a benign dictatorship. You can carry on yeah. reading what you like. You can do what yeah. you like. We're not going to steal anything. We're not going to ask yeah. for war reparations. You can carry on going to work, um, but you yeah. just need to make stuff for us now. Everyone have gone, fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd, they'd have found yeah. that the vast majority of French, Dutch and and, um, and Belgian people were would have, remarkably... Would have chimed along, chimed along chimed with that along nicely. Happily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because the French workers thinking, okay, I've still got a job. I'm still being paid. I'm not yeah. having to kill myself. Um, yeah. Okay, and they've dealt with those get... communists. They've dealt with those communists. I don't like dealt with those communists. Um, I don't like. Um, and you know, frankly, thank God we haven't got that rubbish government that kind of yeah, yeah, couldn't make yeah. its mind up for ten yeah. years. Yeah. I mean, the other thing. I mean, you know, later on in the war, you've got this thing that because Maybach, for instance, are making engines for Panzers in uh, Paris, aren't they? They're yeah. making them in. They're making them in France, and the Royal Air Force, um, uh, Jamie, uh, hit that factory and delayed Panther and tiger production for months yep. as a result as a as a direct you know and that's a that that stops tanks getting on the battlefield so that's how you know the allies are thinking in terms of logistic logistics in reverse in that sense aren't they they're thinking of the enemy's yep. logistics as much as their own i mean it's interesting oh. isn't it because after all the culmination point for the allies is kind of is what 250 miles once they get a couple of hundred miles from from normandy they start to run out of petrol don't they and things and slow down with all and, their resources 
And that's with all their resources and all their understanding of it and their concentration of it and all the world's shipping and all access to all the world's, world's oil, you know, blah, 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 blah. Even they can't sustain it. So no. that's how important it is. But it is interesting. You know, I mean, we were talking about the the uh, Block 162 or 152 or whatever yeah. it was. That four-engine bomber, heavy bomber that could fly over 300 miles an hour. I yeah. mean, why, did, why didn't the Germans just get them to build more of that? I mean, you know, yeah. but no, they don't. You know, it's it's insane. They go, no, what, what we want you to do is we want you to build Messerschmitts. So that means sending in machine tools, which are completely different, retraining the, the, the workforce. Whereas yeah. you've got perfectly good aircraft being made by the French with all yep. the kit in place. I mean, yep. it just makes no sense at all. So I'm going to well, tell my uh, dog shut up. Betsy, go and sit on your bed and shut up. <laughs> go on, on your bed. Stop fussing. What's that? Barbarossa could have been one. Oh, okay. We have an opinion, a canine opinion there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the the thing is, is is uh, is it is it the, all of these decisions though that that the, they all they all stem from the sort of you know the the political culture that the Germans have have, have adopted, and mm-hmm. they they're not going to go to France and say, hey, you you guys you guys carry on making those Deuatine whatever they are they they're they're a neat little plane carry on they're not going to do it no they just can't they can't do it so it's like so many of these they things could do it they could do it but but they, psychologically they could, politically they, they can't, can't. Allow themselves yeah 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 and yeah, it's just yeah. you know the the Germans could have been so much more successful in the Second World War if it hadn't been for, you know, all their if it hadn't been for, well, if it hadn't been for starting it. But they, you know, this becomes circular, doesn't it? Because because yeah, of because you know that that's the way they were thinking, and that's the thing that got them in this situation, and that's the, the thing that lost it for them. You know, blah 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 blah. blah. Anyway, das ist alles für heute, mein Freunden. Uh, we haven't, hold on, we just got to answer Jamie's last thing about the oh, uh, oh, yeah, recorded sorry. instance of heavy oh, bombers yeah. shooting down heavy bombers. Yeah. Um, not that I'm aware of, but there must have been. There's lots of incidents of bombers shooting down fighter planes. You're also not going to you're not going to admit it, are you? You're not going to land and say, I think I shot down um, a K for, K for Ken, are you? Oh, no, there's lots of that. There's lots of that. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of bombers. Because, it, you, you know, because actually, if you're on a... So oh, I thought this was... Sorry, I thought this was a friendly fire question rather than a, you know, Lancaster Sidles. I don't think it is a friendly fire one, but, but, right, but okay. th- that happened a lot. Because, you know, yeah. I mean, just for example, if you're in the... Um, let's say you're you're at the tail gun of a B-17. Actually, your your line of vision is comparatively small. Hmm. You know, and you're going around, and then suddenly a plane comes across you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, no. So, were there any instances of heavy bombers shooting down heavy? That's a good question. I mean, I mean, so what? Like a Lancaster chasing down a Junkers eighty-eight? Although Junkers eighty-eight isn't really is a medium, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, but but also it depends on what role. I mean, there's lots of bombers in all sorts of roles. Bombers. I don't know. I mean, we don't know. Yes, there's lots of recorded instances of heavy bombers <laughs> shooting down heavy bombers, but but do you mean friendly fire or do you mean heavy bombers shooting down enemy heavy bombers? Because no one else had get back heavy bombers to, apart Jamie, from Jamie, get get back to us, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Clarify your point, Jamie. Okay, because no one else had a heavy bomber, did they? No, no, it's an so allied thing. Friendly fire. So the answer is yeah. yes. Yeah, plenty. Yes. Anyway, right. Well, das ist, das ist alles für heute. We're back with our usual uh, Thursday morning interview and, of course, our Thursday night live stream. Peter Caddick Adams, Battle of the Bowls, Bastogne. What's what? not to like? Not to like. Um, <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen, meine Freunden. Yeah, tschüss. <laughs> <laughs>